Welcome to the 411th of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today, I welcome Lucy Easthope, professor in practice of risk and hazard at the University of Durham in the UK and author of the forthcoming book, when the Dust Settles, Stories of Love, Loss, and Hope from an Expert in Disaster. Just a reminder, you can usually catch COVID calls live on weekdays at 7 p.m. Eastern time. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. Today is a special COVID Calls episode at 5 p.m. Korea time, 8 a.m. UK time. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID calls via Twitter using the handle at USF Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. And please, as always, feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. I wanted to make an announcement that March 16th of 2022 will be the last of the regularly scheduled COVID calls. That'll be episode number 500, if you can believe that. We've been at this for this long. And one of the things we're going to do in that episode is a people's history of the pandemic. And so I would like to ask people to spread the word. If you'd like to come on COVID calls and talk for 10 or 15 minutes and share your experience as a survivor, as a family member, as a healthcare worker, other essential worker, as a researcher, an artist, you know the range of conversations we've had on COVID calls, and I'd like to have a very long set of discussions with people coming in and sharing their story in a kaleidoscopic way on that 500th episode. So please do get in touch with me about that. Thank you. According to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center, some statistics, 159,503 people have died in the UK from COVID-19 as of February 10th, 2022. The nation of New Zealand reports 53 deaths from COVID-19. I've been reading an obituary or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic. I'd like to continue that now. The headline is Philip Kahn, age 100, dies. Spanish flu took his twin a century ago. This was written by Catherine Q. Seeley. It appeared in the New York Times April 24, 2020. Philip Kahn believed that history repeats itself, a truism that has hit home for his family in extraordinary fashion. His twin brother, Samuel, died as an infant during the Spanish flu pandemic of 1918-1919. Now Mr. Kahn himself has died of the coronavirus. He was 100. He was a very healthy 100, Warren Zisman, one of his grandsons, said in a phone interview. He watched the news. He was completely aware of the pandemic. When he started coughing, he knew he might have it, and he knew the irony of what was going on. Mr. Zisman added, and he would say, Warren, my boy, I told you history always repeats itself. We could have been much better prepared for this. Philip Kahn, a decorated World War II veteran, died on April 17, 2020, at his home in Westbury, New York, on Long Island. Tests confirmed he had COVID-19, his doctor Sandeep Jahar 
a cardiologist in nearby New Hyde Park, wrote on Facebook. Lovely man, wry wit, a kind soul, Dr. Jahar added. His twin brother succumbed in a different pandemic, the Spanish flu, 100 years ago, 101 years ago. Chances of siblings dying a century apart in global pandemics seem beyond remote, but the cons are not the only ones. Selma Ryan, age 96, who died of the virus in San Antonio on April 14, 2020, lost her older sister Esther to the Spanish flu 102 years earlier, according to News 4SA, a local television station in San Antonio. The sisters never knew each other. Philip Felix Kahn did not know his brother either. The twins, whose father ran a bakery on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, were born on December 15, 1919, also in Manhattan, while the Spanish flu was still raging. The boys were just a few weeks old when Samuel died. He had this level of sadness about it because while he was born a twin, he never got to experience being a twin, said Mr. Zisman, who is himself a twin. He always told me how hard the loss of his brother was for his parents, he added, and that he carried this void with him his entire life. Philip served in an army aerial unit in the Pacific during World War II, participating in the Battle of Iwo Jima and later in firebombing raids over Japan. He also helped make aerial surveys after the United States dropped atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. He earned two bronze stars. After the war, he worked as an electrical foreman and helped build the World Trade Center and the first New York City blood bank. He was always active, enjoying swimming and dancing. He would even dance on roller skates. In addition to Mr. Zisman, Mr. Kahn is survived by his daughter, Lynn Zisman, five other grandchildren, and six great-grandchildren. Mr. Zisman said that his grandfather had loved to talk about the war and history and that almost every story he told began with his brother, Samuel, and ended with the same point. It was important to learn from experience. At the end of his life, he spoke often of Samuel. Mr. Zisman's wife, Dr. Corey Carlin Zisman, who's been treating coronavirus patients around the clock at Long Island Jewish Medical Center called the brothers pandemic bookends. The Spanish flu killed 50 million people worldwide. At the time that this story appeared in April of 2020, the coronavirus had killed 191,000. Okay, I'd like to turn for my to my conversation for today, and this is one I've really been looking forward to. Let me introduce you to my guest, Lucy Easthope. Professor Lucy Easthope is a leading authority on recovering from disaster. For over two decades, she has challenged others to think differently about what comes next after tragic events. She is a passionate and thought-provoking voice in an area that few know about, emergency planning. However, in the time of the COVID-19 pandemic, her work has become decidedly more mainstream. She has particular interest in the support of children and young people after disaster. Professor Easthope has advised government departments, corporations, emergency and health services, charities during the pandemic. The book, When the Dust Settles, is published, will be published in March 2022. She's known globally for her work and holds research positions in the United Kingdom and New Zealand. She's a professor in practice of risk and hazard at the University of Durham, where she co-founded the After Disaster Network and is a fellow in Mass Fatalities and Pandemics at the Center for Death and Society at the University of Bath, UK. Lucy Easthope, welcome to COVID Calls. Thank you very much for having me. It's been something I've really wanted to do. Thank you. 
So I'd like to start the way I usually do, just find out where you're calling from and what the pandemic is looking like there today. Yeah, brilliant. Well, I'm calling from from England, um, and we're at a very key transition point. Um, one you and I have uh, uh, know well, I think, in in disaster history and disaster recovery. It's a very uncomfortable point. Um, we are trying to decide what next. I think so. For a lot of the country, there's this sense of dissonance. The pandemic is very much still with us. Uh, we have, uh, like in many parts of the world, we have a daily death toll. We have huge pressure on our healthcare, but politically and also sometimes socially, there's a huge pressure now to um, declare the next phase of the disaster. So that's something that, as you well know, I'm very interested in in my writing. Well, I think we'll talk about that in detail, but just at the tip of the iceberg here for it, um, because this kind of language has been used in the United States. Um, it's being he used here in South Korea, where I am, where we're in the middle of an Omicron wave and where the death rate um, in the last two months has been higher than at any time of the pandemic. And yet we're hearing the same rhetoric in all of these different countries about living with COVID, time to get normal, time to get past it. What's triggering it? Because the data that I've been paying attention to for the last 23 months, um, you know, this wouldn't seem necessarily like the right time to say, OK, we're past it now. Yeah, it's very, very interesting because one of the things that my work has taught me and I work in emergency planning, the wonderful field that is emergency planning, um, but with a specialism in afterwards. And I, I go into a disaster usually at the sort of three or four days in point. Um, I'm no use in the initial response. I go in afterwards and say, OK, where might this go? And um, one common experience for me is that, that people uh, just start to talk about recovery, moving on, um, moving to the next stage way earlier than people are comfortable with. Um, and it is a strategic decision. It feels a little bit like a battlefield decision. It is about we need to give people hope. We need to give people a horizon. The difficulty, I think, at the moment is, uh, I suspect probably in both the UK and the US, it's being linked to a sort of popular type of politics where it's the right thing to tell the people, but it's not true about what the data says. Um, I it's a it's a really difficult balance to strike and it always feels too soon. Um what what is interesting in the UK um and and you know the, the absolute enemy of anybody in disaster response is hubris and arrogance. So we are you know we you know one thing I would always say in disaster response is is keep humble <laughs> particularly in the face of of mother nature. But one thing about the UK is obviously we we powered through various waves with what what I think seemed like a certain amount of almost abandoned like let's just go for this and and how will history judge that and I and, and it's a really interesting one and, and the UK has a bit of an aberration a history of aberration in disaster recovery that it entangles its uh, next steps with economic recovery political recovery and also forgetting we we move forward very quickly with a lot of um, bombastic politics. I don't I don't think it's entirely linked to the current leadership that we have. Um, so I was apocryphally told it's only an anecdote that when the Boston bombings occurred, the responders were told tonight we do a London. This this powering through is a very um, is a very common theme that I encounter in disaster recovery, and it may be that other other countries have realised they just have to keep going. I wonder if you wouldn't mind sharing a personal memory of this 
time period, and I've called this the impossible question because the memories are so dense. But is there something that really stands out for you about this pandemic time? Um, well, one of the things I, I really want to thank you for is, A, doing this project, and B, the obituaries. The obituaries ground you. And like all of us, this has been a, a time of loss. And I lost two two great women, um, absolute mentors in disaster management, uh, Maureen Kavanagh, who was a founder of Disaster Action, and Eve Coles, who's well known to many as a as a disaster scholar. And for Maureen, you know, I couldn't I couldn't go to the funeral. Um, it was a very very strict rule. Um, she had been a great mentor, a great friend, an angel all all of my working life. I absolutely loved her, and I could not go to the funeral. And one thing that is very difficult when you perhaps put the case that now is the time to recover is that people will say, you don't know, you weren't there. And um, we, all deaths in the time of plague are deaths in the time of plague, whatever, whatever caused them. And um, uh, we have all been incredibly touched, I think, by, by the pandemic. Um, the other thing, the other memory that I think will stay with me is the very first, um, realization which obviously for disaster planners came a lot earlier than other people so december january 2019 into 2020 and knowing what this was but not being able to be heard mm -hmm. uh and you know my husband describes it as my sort of going being very hard to live with stage because you're just in this world of it's coming it's coming it's coming and um, other people thinking you're being dramatic and, you know, you're wondering about your older relatives, you're wondering about your vulnerable relatives. You've got friends who are sending their children off to New Zealand for a gap year from England in January. And you're thinking they might not be able to get back for two years. But at that point, it's just like the seventh news item on, on the news, the news programs. And that I, I, I it was incredibly difficult. And that will stay with me forever. I started COVID calls out of that exact uncanny experience and and my uh spouse would certainly uh what you described would resonate with her the um hard to live with the disaster researcher phase of the disaster that maybe we should build that in i guess uh somehow because there is this bouncing around in which you're calling people pe people who know what they're seeing saying this is really happening yeah. and sort of waiting for the seriousness to filter its way through the culture and it did come obviously, but not nearly fast enough for me. No, no. And, for, and it was hugely alienating for family and friends, you know. And and in fact, one thing that really moved me recently was sharing uh, a, a Facebook post with people I'd met on Twitter who were also disaster researchers in all around the world who have, say, a, a public Twitter face and then a private Facebook page for friends mm. and family and what they had written to friends and family in February 2020. And, and the reaction that had provoked. So certainly within, within my family, uh, my parents have always been very great and very supportive and they were like, we believe you. And uh, I discuss in the book, you know, talking to Tom about what this was, my husband, but a lot of friends just thought I was having a sort of, you know, dramatic moment and perhaps trying to sell a book or whatever, you know, and I was, it was, it was, it was inflated. And then of course we went the other way. So by March, April, we have gone to a place in the UK where the disaster is being managed in 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 the media and in sort of social um, context as if it was um, 
Ebola. You know, people are incredibly terrified. They don't want to see children in the supermarket. They don't want to um, touch things. They uh, aren't going to hospital with a with an obvious heart attack. So we we swung incredibly quickly from really not taking this seriously. You know, our, our, our lead ministers not attending our our briefings about what this was to this massive, um, you know, stultifying, adrenaline releasing fear. And both were equally problematic as a disaster responder. I, I wanted to circle back also to what you shared about the death of two friends and, and just acknowledge that. And um, thank you for sharing that. I'm sorry about that. And um, you're, many people have shared this experience of not being able to be at a, yeah. at a funeral. Um, I, I hope you don't mind me asking this, but how, um, how do you reconcile that? I mean, is that... Is that funeral, are those kind of memorials deferred to some point in which we can do that? Or is this a process of just saying goodbye differently? So what I am, you know, I'm a disaster planner with a, with a, with a kind of broad uh, head, but my one of my subsets of my main work is what we call excess death and mass fatality planning. And I had worked for 20 years on protecting and preserving the rituals of death in the UK. And we had government work streams that were part of our pandemic planning for preserving the right to be with somebody at the end of life, the right to see the body, the right to um, be at the funeral. And what we had learned, and I mentioned the wonderful Maureen who founded Disaster Action, we had had a series of very, very significant socio-technical disasters in the UK in the 80s and 90s where terrible harms were done to families. And one key lesson in all of those was how you treat the relatives, the bereaved, but also how you treat the body and the right to rituals and the right to rest and the right to burial dictate the community recovery. And um, so I had a work stream for mass fatalities, which is no notice disasters, bomb attacks, air crashes, and a work stream for how we would protect people's rights to be able to cope with this loss and this ambiguous loss, because perhaps they couldn't be there at the end. Um, and one of the ways I was going to do that was with a very, very healthy PPE stockpile, personal protective equipment, so that we could always get grieving relatives uh, into, the, into the situation. Now, there were some scenarios where we couldn't protect those rights and rituals. So with a high consequence infectious disease like Ebola, We'd done a lot of planning in 2014 about sitting down with a family and saying there are some things we can't allow you to do. But I had not expected that with um, the corona or the influenza pandemics that we were planning for. I expected to be able to keep a lot more rituals. Having said that, one thing that really struck me in the early part of 2020 was funerals as a gathering are are super spreader events to highly vulnerable people. You know, they bring people across the country, possibly across sure. globally, and they often, you know, fellow 80-year-olds or 90-year-olds. So they were they were really risky events. So one question I was actually asked very early on um, by the psychologists advising the government is, will people delay their death mm. ritual? Will they come mm. back later and have them? Um, there was a huge um, thought here in the UK that things like a Zoom funeral would be a, a suitable substitute. But of course, often the people grieving are older or they don't have access to that technology. There's been various evaluations of, of what rituals have and haven't worked. For me, what I asked to do for, for Maureen was to stand in the, in, the, um, in the cemetery. I just wanted to be in the cemetery. And 
understandably what you saw was was things like the um the the officers at the crem- the crema- uh, crematorium and officers in in uh the funeral directors not wanting any gathering of people and also there was a sort of procedural concern you know if you were seen to be allowing people to gather you might lose your you know you might get a telling off from the local authority you might lose your right to, to provide this service i I've thought a lot about what I would have what I would have done differently, um, mm. you know, to, to lobby government. We tried very hard in February and March to say that, you know, the most important thing was this tackling of the right to attend a funeral. But I think even more importantly, what we have definitely not got right with no disrespect to our health practitioners at all is the one of the biggest harms you can do to a community in disaster is what we call ambiguous loss. So mm the the difficulty with saying goodbye and i wish we could have protected visiting in our hospitals and palliative uh, facilities in a very different way and we're still not back there yet that's fascinating and i've talked to um health doctors and other you know nurses and healthcare practitioners who've ta- talked about that in the united states and think particularly about dr gabriel boslett um who's a great follow on twitter and um and he told me straight up, he said, this has been one of the worst parts and people don't recognize it, not only because of, as you said, the, the additional harm that's done by not allowing family into grief, but also just the important role that those family members play in end of life yeah. for the practitioners. Yeah. And so that's important. There could be so much research done on this. I just want to remind folks you're listening to COVID calls and I'm talking to emergency planning scholar. Lucy East Hope today, and you can follow her on Twitter. She's a great follow on Twitter at Lucy Gobag, and I'm going to put that in here so everybody can find that. And since I had the chance to talk to you, I can't miss out on the opportunity to find out actually how you got into this line of work. I'm I'm a I'm a researcher of researchers. I mean, I, and I love the origin stories, particularly of people like yourself who find your your way into an important but still a niche area in the sort of overall um, world of emergency and disaster. How did you get into it, Lucy? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm a child of the great city of Liverpool. And um, uh, as I talk about in the book, the the first chapter, um, my uh, hugely formative experience was watching my community experience the Hillsborough disaster. And uh, my parents were both teachers uh, locally and they had uh, pupils at the um, Hillsborough football stadium crush on the 15th of April, 1989. And almost immediately, um, obviously, there was a narrative that the fans were blamed for the disaster. That wasn't a narrative that me and my family ever believed in. I had school friends at the game, uh, went into school on the Monday and, and, and classmates had been at the game. And um, I became it's sort of hard in, hard in hindsight to sort of uh, convey how much a 10-year-old can become an activist, although now I see it all the time. I work with children after things like the fire in the Grenfell Tower in 2017, and I'm surrounded by child activists. Um, so it makes a lot more sense that from really the age of 10, I wanted to um, improve the care of uh, people caught up in disaster in in the UK um, and also wherever possible internationally. Um, and I thought the way to do it was to sort of change the system from the inside. So I studied law uh, and then disaster management, I have a master's in disaster management and then uh, a PhD in medicine. And what I've always tried to do is have a academic position where I can raise hell and ask difficult questions <laughs> and write papers. And then, you know, if they're a bit naughty, blame it on being an academic and also a response position. 
So really, pretty much every disaster in the UK or uh, involving UK citizens in the last 20 years, I've had some involvement in the recovery and response. How do you think disaster research more generally, this is a big question, but I'm I want to ask you, um, do you think we'd have more effectiveness, particularly in influencing policy, if more disaster researchers also had one foot in the practitioner realm? It's a really difficult one, you know, because we're horrible to each other at conferences. So and it's yes. something I do pick up in the book, you know, and, 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 and sometimes I'm being insulted as an academic and sometimes I'm being insulted as a practitioner. And one of the things that I'm desperate to do <laughs> is just have this sort of nicer culture in disaster management. And, and you know, you'll I mean, I've been at conferences where, say, a chief of fire has stood up after an academic and gone and now for the real story uh, you know, and just totally taken the legs out of somebody who's just presented yeah. years of research. So for me and we went through a stage here, you know, what could we call it if you did both and, mm -hmm. you know, lived experience and real and the pracademic was a was a terrible yeah. phase we went through. Yeah. Um, and I I think I was very one of one of the difficulties for me is. I came into the field in a bit of a heyday. You know, the, the world was really excited about emergency management. To see that decline is, is really difficult. So when I started, one of my first academic jobs was running a course at the University of Hertfordshire for very senior um, emergency management professionals, chiefs of fire, police, mm. uh, local authority, um, BP, all kinds of corporations would send their executives to do a master's degree in emergency management. And that was something really prized. and I. I think we've seen a demise in the UK, possibly in the US, possibly uh, less so in, in, in other places with the idea of expertise. So it's, you know, I've been to the University of Life. Everybody's got an opinion. Right. I don't need a master's degree to validate this. But of course, one thing that time with a, with a university qualification teaches you is critical research, the importance of the archive, how to... Uh, walk a path that's gone before, how to apply 1918 to 2019, how to apply Ebola to 2019. So one of the difficulties that I had uh, advising government was I would I would sort of trap up with 10 other case studies, people who had applied 1918, you know, your work, lots of work on disaster history. And people go, oh, that's historic, or that's a slightly different disease. You can't bring right. that in here. And then the other big problem that I had was, was civil servants saying to me, this, this, the pandemic, isn't a disaster. You must right. not, you can't use the D word with the minister. The other things are disasters. You know, the other nations have disasters. Britain actually, in, in, our, in our civil response framework, has no D word. We don't mention it. The great, <laughs> the great Britain does not suffer disaster. Uh -huh. so actually, how, good, how good for you. <laughs> <laughs> so bringing the knowledge right. of past places which of course academia does so well that isomorphic learning of, of history was not allowed in this pandemic and that i'd love to see that challenge and i am a one-woman challenger that you can be both and equally respected as both i'm really glad that you uh, I'm, I'm really glad i asked you that question and, and i'll share with you very briefly i was at a, at a hazards meeting one time, people who aren't maybe as familiar, there's sort of a long-standing meeting for disaster social scientists at the University of Colorado Boulder has held over years. And um, I was on a panel. I gave a, a history of emergency management. I was really proud to be at this meeting. And the last person to speak was an emergency medicine doctor who had saved lives of people on the tarmac at Louis Armstrong Airport after Hurricane Katrina. 
And it it just took, she was wonderful. And after it was over, she was mobbed and people were literally like pushing me and the other academics out of the way to get to her because she had a compelling story yeah. to tell. And I thought, well, I thought a lot of things after that. But one of the things I thought is that even if we're not practitioners, we could be much better at narrative. Yeah. And it's sort of relating stories in impactful sort of present ways, dialing down the jargon in, in the right moments. Um, and this is a never going work. I don't suppose we ever will perfect it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think also be better at analyzing privilege, bias. Um, you know, in in the UK, I, I, I chair a lot of conferences and panels and sometimes both researchers and practitioners will start with a couple of sentences and you know that they've lost the audience. Um, you know, there's a lot of uh, prejudices that come out about communities affected by disaster. So, you know, we, we, Twitter's great for being able to call those out. That, so things like, you know, the harder to reach community that you really just didn't try to reach at all. Um, you know, and, and, and those real clangor lines that sometimes academics use uh, and researchers use around um, disaster management. I mean, you can lose a room, as you well know, just by calling something natural disaster. <laughs> You've lost the room. And, and so I think, um, you know, one of the things is, is about um, really understanding uh, you know, a, a wonderful researcher, Brenda Mackey, that I adore. In it, she she was in the Christchurch uh, earthquakes, and, and she's now uh, working in disaster research in Australia. You know, one of the things she said is researchers will come to our disaster and and um, and dissect us like frogs on a board. And New Zealand was a great example of where the ethics of disaster research was really explored. And obviously, there was a moratorium and a central board for right. ethnography. Um, and and you know we have obligations and 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 writing is incredibly painful and difficult because you're telling stories of bereavement and grief and other people's mm -hmm. stories that aren't your stories very similar to to, to um, historical writing so there's huge obligations I think on disaster researchers. So we're going to come to COVID, I promise, but the, I, I wanted to also ask you about your 2018 book, The Recovery Myth, and because uh, I think that really, th those themes that are raised in that book are so relevant to understanding COVID and this, as you said earlier, this particular moment we find ourselves in with COVID. So um, I want to ask you about some specific concepts in the book, but can you tell me just a little bit about how you found that? Okay, this is a two, 2007 flood in Tolbar, Doncaster in, in the UK. Why did you choose this case? What were you trying to do with the book? Yeah, so this is this is uh, exactly speaks to our earlier point. So I'm already working for both the cabinet office and the home office as an independent advisor in research. And uh, I also want to study uh, for a PhD. I'm also, you know, I'm working in, in uh, university positions. I can see the value of a PhD. Um, and I decide to enroll on a PhD at the School of Medicine at Lancaster University. And my husband is flying a commercial jet out of the very newly built Doncaster airport. So we moved to a, a house in Doncaster. 
And that part of Doncaster is one of the worst hit by the 2007 floods, which are really, really profound floods across the UK, hugely damaging. And it's a case of looking out the window and, and villages all around you are, are flooded. And I was already um, you know, known to the local councils as somebody that did workshops and reviews and training. And um, the, my two worlds collided, really, both as an advisor and then as a student. And I think what you get from my writing, and, and, and I think both books do this, is that you, I'm never teaching anybody anything. I'm being constantly schooled. So the people of Tollbar, uh, which is a um, village in, in, in Doncaster in South Yorkshire in the UK, take me on a journey of what it means to be flooded in, in the UK. And I'm so grateful, actually, to um, my editors of the new book because they allow flooding to be right at the center of, of the new book. And there's this huge pressure when you're writing um, commercially, to, you know, it's, it's got to be exciting. I've done bomb attacks, I've done plane crashes. But for me, flooding and the people of Tollbar in Doncaster are the people who taught me what chronic ebb and flow of life in disaster looks like. And the other thing was, you know, I, I funded myself for the PhD. I didn't have funding that ended on a particular date. So I just kept going back, you know, and I became known as the skip lady because I would go and ask them what they'd been made to throw out. You know, they were made to throw out a lot of their personal effects and a lot of their furniture. And I, I went back and in fact, still go back now, but I went back repeatedly for the research for seven years. And that's actually, as you well know, that's short in disaster longitudinal study. But bearing in mind that the UK guidance at the time was a 12-week framework for flood recovery. And in 12 weeks, you know, everything was still wet in 12 weeks. Yeah, right, absolutely. So it, yeah. it was this challenge to the, the, the narrative. And also what the book became was um, I'm writing Cabinet Office guidance on how to recover. So that was the big thing. We'd stolen it from New Zealand and Australia, who already had recovery guidance, and we wanted our own. <laughs> a nice bit of healthy UK plagiarism. We wanted our own recovery guidance, and it's going to be fast, and it's going to be economically good, and we're going to build back better. And I'm going every day to a place that is broken by the floods, but also broken by the state machinery, you know, completely at the whim of when a responder decides we will recover with a big R, as I call it in the book. And that, I think, is very analogous to now. The pandemic won't end. You and I know that. We will, we will know this for the rest of our lives. But somewhere, state machinery will declare key points of transition. And what I write about in the recovery myth is what that feels like on the ground when that happens. So I want to just, um, it's a beautifully written book. And if people haven't had a chance to read it, please do. And I, I, you, you talk about the importance of time a lot. So as a historian, I, I, I love this book, double because Thank the you. ethnography as well. But I, I want to just quote a couple of sentences from it, because you're talking about just this issue of the government's time frame of recovery. But then what happens when you really situate yourself as a researcher and collect stories and interact with disaster survivors. And you write, it's the human stories, the telling of the losses and everyday changes, which illustrate that those caught up within the disaster may not realize that they're supposed to have moved on to the next phase and that the circumstances influencing their lives may not be moving at the same pace as the official response. It's a really important insight because it shows sort of a, a managerial world and then a world of people in collision and it's constantly in collision, but you you throw it into this really important relief. Uh, could you say a little bit more about how that resolves itself in, in this case, or does it ever? 
I don't think it does. And I, one thing that I have sort of tried to do, I think, with with COVID and and with some of the the discussion that I'm putting on the Twitter, and I'm very I'm very glad that that recovery myth exists, is that um, it, what tends to happen is the people who are feeling it's too soon and too painful, they don't win this fight. <laughs> Everything else moves on around them, and what you tend to see is this is a huge issue in terms of mental health and 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 um, a huge issue in terms of feeling left behind. And I think there is a common theme in in disaster communities of 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 basically screaming into the void. Why aren't you remembering this? Why why aren't you you know doing this again? And actually, that's one of the powers of of, of writing this down. Is um and 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 you know I love that a mini legacy in social media at the moment is if a if a politician in the UK says you know that we were totally unprepared we, we will be we didn't have plans people go hang on that's not what at Lucy Gobag says you know yeah. the the importance is to remember in a particular way which allows us to be ready for next time but also honour what people have been through and the problem I think we'll see with the pandemic is very similar to floods that they, the the measure that we we measure success literally in the UK recovery guidance as the as the disaster having been cleared away so we have targets in in the national recovery guidance for flooding and the disaster must not be visible so for example when you know that a politician is coming to a flooded area there'll be a mass influx of skips in the day before and people will be told to just clear out all the rubbish mm-hmm. because politicians will equate you know kind of clean streets with recovery and what you're going to see, I think, particularly in, in the health sector, is that the, the the real pain of the ongoing disaster is moved behind closed doors. And it will it, it will feel, it will continue to feel as heavy as it has done at various other points. But, you know, there will be this emphasis on sort of keeping going. And that is a huge dissonance for people's mental health at the moment. And what I've seen most commonly is that the people that are, most affected by this uh, too soon, this too fast, is is the bereaved. Um, they feel very forgotten very quickly, and that is very, very difficult. One of the concepts that you introduce in the recovery myth also is um, this idea of the technologies of recovery. Mm-hmm. You also talk about recovery instruments, which uh, say a little bit more about what the technologies of recovery are, because I think it also speaks to this bind we find ourselves in where we do want policy, we want rules, we want, you know, uh, plans, but then we also have the disaster as it, as it is. What are these technologies of recovery meant to do and what do they really do? Oh, I love that question. And I was so, again, you know, you can just tell, I think Scott, that I just, I just try and learn every day. (laughs) My head is always full of bees. So, you know, one of the things that was really illuminating to me was the research of science and technology studies and the use of um, concepts of um, instruments that do something and the psychological importance of the plan and I'm a big fan of the emergency plan you know you won't you won't see me um you won't see me sort of saying our oh, plan doesn't work I love I love the tools and, and and tricks of our trade one thing that's been very interesting I think in the COVID pandemic with a lot of journalists is they say I can't find the plan online that you disaster planners did and I think one of the things that the recovery myth brings out is that the tools are not always 
a very formal PDF of a plan. The tools that sit around disaster management are often things like um, an exercise scenario or a checklist. And there's planning and there's plans. And um, one of the things that's really interesting is, is, you know, how do these for me in the recovery myth, I really explore how these things travel from different disasters and the blockages that, that they encounter. So, for example, we had two very significant, we've had several significant, but two very, very significant poisonings of um, former Russian dissidents in, in the UK. And one involved uh, the nuclear agent polonium and the second involved Novichok. And one of the decisions made after the polonium uh, cleanup was that all of that recovery material would be made available online. Uh, and, and would be open source, not obviously some of the more secret stuff, but the, the, the framework right. emergency planners use would be available. But then when Novichok happened, the planners were very dismissive of the Polonium plan because it said Polonium on the front right. and they had Novichok. But in fact, if you turn to page two from that, that page onwards, it was really useful. And so one of the things about, you know, what uh, the book is, is I'm exploring how vulnerable disaster technologies are a bit like our, our conversation about researchers and and practitioners to being dismissed mm -hmm. the plan basically a lot of senior commanders don't believe the plan's going to be enough so right. they dismiss it and that was a huge issue for us with the new government it's the government's only been in in literally days when the situation worsened in terms of the pandemic and I, do, I just don't think, because, you know, they're Word documents. We, we work with Word, Excel spreadsheets. And I think one of the things I explore in the new book very strongly is I think politicians expect something more impressive as a disaster technology. <laughs> like, we're very, we're very influenced by, yeah. you know, yeah. the born identity. And then yeah. I turn up. <laughs> yeah. You, got you got your manual. Yeah. yeah, with a manual. You know, I've got my jumper on. I've got my water for hydration. And, and you know, one of the things I've really learned to bear as a as a as a um, advisor to government and to other agencies in the first few days is people going, this is not what we expected at all. And they I think they mean me, but also the technologies that accompany me. So I talk about their fragility. They are they are just documents on a computer, but they can they can change an entire path of a response. And I really, I really do get that across in when the dust settles. And that's the utility of disaster planning is when we turn up, we can make a big difference with a single document. Uh, such a fascinating insight because I, uh, and I know you've been in these command centers and there is this desire, particularly in, in big cities that have the funds to do it and wealthy governments to dashboard everything and to turn it into the the command center, it's like from Doctor Strangelove. You know, they got the big board, um, but you know that the big board and the dashboard are only as good as the data points behind it uh, and the interpreters who can actually make sense of the technology. And that just that just I'm really fascinated by your insight that um, the new government comes in. They're like, "Where's the big board?" You know, yes. in a sense, right? Yeah. So let's do, let's go a little further with this uh, and and talk a little about the the sort of early phase of pandemic response in the UK. You were just addressing it, um, and I'd like to juxtapose that with New Zealand. Um, and what's what was similar and and what was different? Obviously, the death counts are staggeringly different, and yeah. the approaches have been quite different. Um, but both governments, both countries, like any country in the world, has access to the same disaster history that any other does. So I'm yeah. curious about the variability in response. 
And this is one where, as you well know, you know, it's we're right in the middle of it. So my my feeling is the analysis of of what this looked like is about 10 to 15 years away. And these are all very hot takes at, at the moment. The assumption had often been, I think, with a corona, um, an out corona pandemic was that we would do a SARS or a MERS. We would stop it in its tracks. Um, it's not true to say that certainly in the UK, emergency planners didn't always have a corona on their agenda. We did. It comes down to this question again about, you know, the plan and the planning. So we'd had a very big exercise, exercise Alice looking at the corona. Um, the the uh, the challenge that we always knew the UK would have in terms of a pandemic response is we are very much a global nation. We are very, very interconnected. And um, one of the learning points for us had actually been the 2010 volcanic ash eruption, which turned us into an island for about a week. Um, and we very nearly fell over as a country at that point. And people, people will be sat there thinking, how on earth do disaster planners make that link? But it really um, forced home to government a point that planners have been making for a very, very long time, which was that um, we can't exist without international networks. We're, we're, you know, we're tunneled and we're, we're linked so, so globally. And there were things that people simply didn't understand about our supply chain. So we knew, I think, um, strategically that we were very different from, uh, say, New Zealand in terms of being able to keep this out. And the kind of advice that was going in was was would appear to me to be around this is not a sustainable strategy uh, and what New Zealand seems to be doing is not sustainable for the UK. Um, whether history will show that New Zealand will face its own challenges as it tries to open up a little bit more and a little bit more. So what we knew with the coronavirus is what, when it's out, it does this. It, it, it wreaks havoc through a population. The other thing that was was possibly quite relevant to the UK at that point was we had a failing social care system um, and we had a real issue with um, poor care of our older and our more vulnerable residents. And that made us very vulnerable to a corona pandemic if it if it took the toll that we thought it would. And so. Um, we have paid a very high price for um, running down our pandemic planning beforehand and running down our um, health care beforehand. Having said that, I do speak to health colleagues in New Zealand who are very worried about the future. You know, are they storing up their own run at this uh, in months and years ahead? Um, you know, there is a school of thought that we we kind of went hard and we we took it we took a, a toll very early on and now we will um, maybe recover ahead of other places. There's a danger that that becomes very populist, very jingoistic. Um, and it's not what I think any of us in disaster management want to see. We want to see this really managed with, with, um, with a lot of care of our, our most vulnerable. Oh, just want to remind folks you're listening to COVID calls and I'm talking to Lucy Easthope today, expert in emergency planning and disaster history. And um, so let's move to this sort of second phase, the, um, you know, once sort of governance is in, is in place um, and uh, the Delta wave begins in the summer of 2021. And, and I found an interview, you said something really 
characteristically really fascinating. You, you were asked, I think, about um, how good the government had done in terms of setting expectations of how long this would last. Yeah. And you said the issue was about public tolerance of reality. Yeah. And last March, so you're referring here to March 2020, it was decided the public couldn't handle the truth. Yeah. You said in this interview, the problem with the pandemic is that it's not like a tap and you can't just turn it off. I don't think we've been very honest with the public about this. Yeah. When you're swimming for the shore, it's important to tell people how long the swim is. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I want to, you know, sort of hear more from you about about what you think government could have done maybe better, but even more than just those sort of takes, just like how do emergency planners help officials understand time scale? Because disasters yeah. come in all different time scales. I mean, somebody like me will say, like you do, they don't ever end. So don't worry. You know, it'll always be slower than you think. But there's no politician who wants to hear that. No, no. And I was, you know, I think I've made it very clear that, you know, I'm constantly learning, constantly being schooled. And these last five years had really um, educated me in terms of the delivery of my own message, um, you know, how to do um, recovery talk to a minister, but also to a community. And um, prior to the pandemic, I've been very heavily involved in the response to the Grenfell fire. And, um, you know, ministers were very clearly selling to the community that this was something that with the right application of justice and support, they would be able to move them through. And the comparison that ministers were actually using was the Hillsborough disaster. And they were basically saying, you know, the disaster that's very, very close to home for me, they were basically saying to the, the families of the Grenfell fire, we, that won't happen to you. You won't go on a 30-year journey. It won't be 32 years. It won't be the rest of your life. And what I'd learned was you can't stand at the other side of the room going, yes, it is. Yes, it is. You know, there's a there's a there's a skill. There's a there's a, a compassion that comes with talking about the length of time this takes. So I've spent a lot of time the last couple of years, you know, reading people like Catherine Mannix's book on listen, how to have difficult conversations in healthcare, um, tempering myself. Um, even down to the point where my body would give me away. So I would be in these meetings and ministers would say things and I'd be very agitated. And actually, if that's if that's where they want to be at that point, being very zen about it. And I've been very lucky on this response because there's 3000 emergency planners in the UK. I'm in WhatsApp groups and wonderful Twitter support groups with colleagues. And we are all debriefing together about coming out of a meeting where somebody 10 rank senior has said, right, let's get this over with by Christmas. And we know that that's not true. So one of the early conversations I had was with colleagues in, very senior colleagues in the Church of England. And they said, uh, this is a six week thing. And I said, you're the church. <laughs> like the, your book is literally about these events. People need you to get them through, get ready for the next 10 years. And uh, they said, no, no, we've had assurances from the government. It's six weeks. And then I knew that I had to temper myself. You know, I, you look, and particularly as a woman, you look hysterical, as only, uh, as only the science will, will say. You know, women can, can be, be crazy in these situations. And, and so that's, that's a real challenge for me is, is how do I temper myself in these meetings so as not to hmm. uh, alert or, or distress people? And then what's happened, and it happens to me all the time with the disasters that I advise in, with, with COVID, what happened was when, it, when the Delta wave hit, 
I got another increase in requests for help because people said, you you said we would see three years of acute disruption. We would lose two Christmases. Can you come back in and talk to us? But what we find as researchers, as you well know, is there's no sweetness in that. There's no, yay, I was right. You know, it's yeah, right. it's 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 probably the, the biggest part of managing my own mental health is there's no there's no uh there's only pain in being right about how long this takes you referenced the, uh, the this word i'm going to use you didn't use the word but you referenced a situation of sort of sexism too um in these in these formats um and of course the research bears this out in terms of who's doing emergency management it has tended to be in most countries i'm aware of overwhelmingly male and and overwhelming background um, in military um, and in law enforcement, and that's no knock on what military and law enforcement do. But I am curious, like, could you say a little bit more about, you know, how you prepare yourself for that? And and you described a situation that's quite palpable, that an official might be looking at you and say, well, she's alarmed because she's a woman doing emergency management. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's a real theme that I draw out in in when the dust settles, and in fact, my my um, my experiences as a as a as a woman and as a wife and as a mother and and and, and trying to have children is a, a huge theme actually within when the dust settles. It's a much more personal memoir, um, and um, you know, in 1997, uh, the much missed Eve Coles had done research about how um, the majority of UK emergency planners were drawn from, uh, they, they would retire from the military and the police and they would do perhaps five final years at the end of their career as emergency planners. And so um, we were a predominantly white male field as we went into the early 2000s. And then as surveys um, were uh, were uh, redone, we started to see a more um, a more on paper gender balance. But what you noted, if you did perform ethnography at things like disaster exercises, and this is very much drawn out in When the Dust Settles, is that the women were present in terms of on the survey, there's 50 men and 50 women, but the women really had to ape the men's uh, style in the response. So that would be to really play down the risk and to be quite um, quite dismissive of, say, the human aspects. And one thing, you know, that we we started to notice, for example, was that in policing, the role of working with the bereaved and the grieving would be allocated to the female detective. So there were sort of disaster roles that were, you know, you know, in the same way as you get asked to make the tea a lot as a woman, you also were being asked to, um, you can have the community and the family assistance centre. And, you know, you'll see in our, we have an emergency planning society, human aspects group, that's predominantly women emergency planners. Um, and one of the things that would would really concern me was that I would raise the concern, you know, I'm not a quiet person, and the room would go very silent. And then in the tea mm. break, other colleagues, both men and women, would say, "We agree with you. That is absolutely a concern." So one of the one of the many times I've been told, you know, you're being too dramatic, was suggesting uh, at a, a big emergency management event in Ireland that we should really uh, we were we were managing our Brexit planning. But we were we were we were planning for Brexit and we were actually sort of planning it as if it was a disaster. That's not a political concept. It's just, you know, in terms of the changes it would put onto society. But we were planning it in isolation. And I said, what if we plan it alongside a pandemic? Right. (laughs) And obviously was dismissed as a fantasist. Um, And Mm. so 
I'm in a very different place. I'm I'm old now, Scott. I'm in a very different place in 2021. I can I can uh, laugh at these moments, but one of the things that does burn is seeing it inflicted on new emergency researchers and emergency planners in the field, both men and women, um, who who are coming in and want to raise a concern. Our environment, I don't know if you've encountered the same, is brutal. It absolutely eats its young. It's really, really cruel. And the other area we really struggle with in UK emergency planning um, is we are very, very undiverse. And so we that carries through. We have a huge... Um, uh, responder bias, police and military bias. We're quite negative to academia. We're quite negative to journalism. We're quite negative to dissent. You know, we go through phases where we train for terrorism, um, but we also train for protest as terrorism. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, you you will, like we said before, you know, you lose an audience in the first two two uh, se- sections, you, uh, first two sentences of a talk. You might find that all of a sudden in an exercise, somebody has framed, say, a Black Lives Matter protest as a as a threat to national security. And, you know, you're thinking this is terrible. So our views are um, through a lens of our of our kind of historic makeup often. Do you think that this pandemic and based just on what you were saying, people came back to you in year two and said, yeah, we were not prepared for the endurance that you told us we were going to need. is this a a moment of change, both conceptually, maybe, and uh, that emergency planning might have its its moment now, but also compounding that you talked about Black Lives Matter. I mean, the issue of who's in the emergency management workforce is not distinguishable from the larger issues of structural racism inside society in the United States, and you know, assume as well in the UK. I don't know the cases as well. But I, I guess I've sort of always try to be the optimist that, that in these moments of rupture, this is when you can try to drive a, a, a truck of change through that in terms yeah. of reforming emergency management. Am I being naive? I'm being naive. No, no, you're bit, this is this is exactly it. And I'm smiling at the analogy because uh, so many colleagues have said Lucy arriving is like having a truck driven through your response. So that, you know, that's exactly what I think we need to do. I am I am tempered by lessons from history, which shows that the the revolution won't be necessarily as big as we would want it to be. Um, there's a very important role, I think, for fast archiving and fast uh, reminding of this pandemic. You're already feeling that people are. I, I had a very successful tweet the other day about being gaslit about what 2020 really felt like, particularly, uh, you know, obviously my lived experience was in the UK. And people are always like, was it that bad? I don't remember. You know, you know, there was a big debate here because some of our ministers started to say, you weren't really locked down. You could still do what you wanted. But of course, you couldn't. So there will be a real sense of, um, like we see after all disasters, it wasn't that bad. There's not much to learn. There's a, there's a. I'm really interested, as I think all disaster scholars are, in why we don't hold on to our lessons from the ones before. And I'm, I'm moving more and more towards there is an importance in forgetting. There is, and um, uh, the urgency has to fade for society for society to move on. Um, one thing, one big legacy, I hope, is that um, we will we will we will surveil and risk manage in a different way. Um, and I would like, you know, my, my one woman legacy at the moment is I would like to put emergency planning on a slightly more respectful 
um, footing and encourage, we do have undergraduate programs all, all around the country for emergency management, encourage uh, young people to, to get involved in it and um, from as many different backgrounds as possible. So um, just a reminder, you're listening to COVID calls. Um, Lucy, I'm being a little greedy with your time, but can you spare me 10 more minutes? Because I, I want to talk about can, the new book. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Um, so the book is When the Dust Settles, Stories of Love, Loss, and Hope from an Expert in Disaster. It's already, I think, available on pre-order in the UK, yeah. Australia, and New Zealand, and soon in the United States. You've been talking um, kind of peripherally about the book and what we'll find in it. But um, first of all, how did you write a book in the middle of a pandemic? But then also, um, uh, what are we going to find in this book? Well, this is this is the life story. So this is the answer to that question that, you know, has always been too big, really, at the end of a conference. You know, the last question from the audience, you know, you can tell the host is trying to wrap it up and somebody says, how did you get into this? Or, you know, what 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 what's motivated you? So it's that answer. I love the person that asks that question, by the way, <laughs> when the host is like, it's the coffee's in the hallway. And then somebody in the back is like, tell us everything. I, yes. That's the guy I live for. But anyway, go yeah, ahead. Go I ahead. know. And I know it's it's I really miss that doing Zoom online events. And also then, you know, kind of knowing that your entire lunch break will be people asking the questions that they didn't ask in the panel. And I, I mean, I've, it's got to the point because people know I like to give a long and voluble answer to any question. I've even now been on panels where the where the chair has said, now we've got time for one more question, but not for Lucy. <laughs> <laughs> so the book is the book is that and the book helped me to organize what is what is important um to me it's a book about my life i mean i um i was so grateful this year because the books that needed to be written about disaster management are out there and you've had you've had people on this podcast i hope you get jill kernick um before the before the march end so she's written a brilliant one on learning from catastrophe uh, disasters and systemic change which needed to be written you know there's been a lot of 80s and 90s work on on learning um and and her work for me has has done something i uh, could only dream of doing around uh, getting on paper where we are at in terms of um learning from from grenfell and, and other big uh, systemic disasters um and then of course we'd had sam montano's disasterology which i think is is um definitive in terms of where we're at with the climate change debate right. and so i um i in a way, they kind of set me free because they were the books I would have loved to write. And then I was like, now I'm going to write a memoir. Um, and uh, really, I'd started to experiment with writing in, in newspapers in 2017 and 2018. And I had a huge reaction to a piece that I'd done after a bomb attack here, the Manchester Arena bombings, where I said, you know, there's emergency plans and there's emergency planning. And people were so interested in that, that it, it had gone out online and then it was included in the print run. Uh, the next day, which is quite a an accolade in 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 publishing now, and the the Guardian had run this piece, and people were contacting all around the world saying there's, there's emergency plans and emergency planners. So I'd started to explore the idea of a documentary, um, and one question I'd had was, you know, would I wear a body cam and people could see <laughs> what like emergency planning life is, and that goes back to our earlier point about technologies and Doctor Strange Love is, you know, there's a lot of typing a couple of phone calls, I'll then have a biscuit, I'll come back. So, right. you know, the idea of wearing a body cam. And they said, okay, start writing it down. And I was, um, obviously for the literary world, um, an agent is very important. I found an agent and um, we'd started to craft it in 2018, 2019. Um, and then 
I was devastated really because I really wanted the story of emergency planning to get out there and I just assumed nobody would want it. Um, and then uh, it, it had a very exciting reception and we had a eight-way auction, which I'd never experienced anything like that before. And I've just been beautifully supported and crafted by Hachette and, and Hodder to make this um, this book. But it is a memoir um, in terms of where it where it you know it tells my life through each uh through well not all of the disasters that I've responded to but um about 15 that have really left a mark on me just you know hope is in the title and that's what I wanted to sort of close with anyway in my discussion with you and maybe it's a little bit hard to find too much hope right now kind of you know we started our discussion talking about this rush to move on and rush to recovery and um and so that that puts a pause for me a little bit because some cold water and some of the hope that i'd had um that there'd be a longer learning period but i think more generally you know the emergency planners i've talked to and that i've studied over the years um they deal with the worst things but they tend to be a pretty hopeful lot do you cast yourself in that role as well Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's a it's a very fine balance. It's that's why it's so important that you start these sessions with the obituary and the reflection because it brings us, you know, we we're not we're not giddy, you know, we're not we're not over excited. I mean, you know, in the recovery myth that I draw very much on on the concept of survivance rather than survival, and the idea of coming through things with learning, with hope, with with humor, with um, a purpose, with a horizon. And I I really hope that you know that that comes out very clearly um, actually in both the recovery myth and when the dust settles. I personally have never been prouder of my field. Um, we went out for a night out recently and I was um, the oldest and there were lots of younger emergency planners and they were talking about sit reps and SCGs and where they're going to meet. And it was all. And I just I had this most it was a it was a spiritual feeling of how safe uh, the field is in their hands. And um, it's never been uh, more stewarded by the very best light bearers. And it's obvious that other countries are experiencing the same. And um, I am incredibly proud of my of my tribe right now. They they have been in, incredible. So that that's the hope that I draw on every day. And what we won't see for a while, but the historians will be allowed to see it. They will be. It will be safe for them to write about it. Is just how well, uh, you know. I, I'm I'm parodied and teased for it because I say you know local plans, local people, but just how well communities and local planners rallied during our greatest test in recent history. So I I have so many reasons to hope. Just want to remind folks that you've been listening to COVID calls and you can usually catch COVID calls at 7 p.m. Eastern time. Uh, today's been a special episode at 5 p.m. Korea time and 8 a.m. UK time. Uh, what a thrill to get to talk to Lucy Easthope and you can follow her on Twitter at Lucy Gobag and you can prepare to buy her new book the when the dust settles when sorry when the dust settles stories of love loss and hope from an expert in disaster um lucy i you're i just enjoyed the conversation and i always learn from you and thanks for taking the time it really means a lot to me thank you scott thank you very much for everything you've done stay healthy everyone we'll see you next time on COVID calls 